This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. Hello, Internet, and welcome to the 100th regular season episode of Quiz and Hers. The trivia podcast where for the past two and a half years... We have been testing each other's knowledge and the strength of our relationship in ten separate ten-week battles for glory, this being our tenth. So far, so good. So far, we're still married. Yep. It hasn't rent us asunder yet. <laughs> nope. I'm Justin. That other voice you hear is my wife, Hallie. Hello. Who is currently destroying me on this season. Yep. This tenth season. Uh, so, if you're new to the podcast, first of all, why are you starting with a season finale? Spoilers. It's because it's a hundred. Maybe. Maybe they believe that a podcast doesn't get good until episode a hundred. That seems about right. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's how it works for this episode and every other one. Each week, one of us writes six trivia questions to ask the other person, one from each of our six different categories, which are arts and literature, times and places, sports and games, movies and TV, music, and everything else. All six questions always relate to some common theme, and after each question, the person who wrote it talks about the answer for a few minutes, so hopefully we can all learn some new information that we can bring back to our favorite pub quiz or favorite game show or whatever your trivia vice might be. So, you are up 20 to 15 on this season. Yep. This is the last game, so I need- 20 is pretty good. 20 is a very high score. I had a couple of games that were too easy this season, clearly. Oh, well. So, I need five correct answers to tie you and force a tiebreaker next week. Or, if I go a perfect six for six, I could come back and win the season. That would suck for me. It's pretty unlikely. I think that has only happened maybe twice in the yeah. 100 episodes that we've done. 99, I guess, so far. Yeah, I think so. So, that would be very, very unusual. But okay, we'll, we'll see. see. All right, what do you got for me? All right, in honor of our <laughs> 100th episode, today's episode is a centenarian celebration. Good word. Thank you. Meaning what? People who live to 100. Oh, okay. Nice. A centenarian is someone who has lived to 100. Okay. So we're going to be talking about things related to people who lived to 100. Nice. Famous people. That's a good theme. Thank you. I thought it would be different than just like a hundred years of solitude. <laughs> I mean, that would be the obvious arts and literature question for the hundredth episode. But I know, okay. but like I didn't, <laughs> I don't know. I just thought it would be not as exciting. Okay. All right. Question one is arts and literature. Bertha George Harris, who died in 2014 at the age of 101, was an American Catawba tribal elder and master in what ancient art form for which she did not use electricity nor a typical wheel? Um, like, well, no. I was going to say weaving, but that would be a loom, not a wheel. Like, I mean, when I think of wheel, I think like spinning, but is that really art? That's more like stuff you produce to make art. Like you produce the thread for weaving by spinning it. You're really thinking this through. Keep keep on your track here, I guess. I'm trying. Uh, what does electricity have to do with anything? She didn't have. She didn't use electricity. What the hell does that mean? 
This is not intended to be this difficult. Sorry. I I don't know. I guess weaving. No. What? It's pottery. Oh. That's the ancient art for which people use a wheel. What the hell does electricity have to do with that? You need electricity to spin the wheel. No, you don't. You need a pedal. A foot pedal. I guess you could also spin the wheel with that. But I was just saying that she didn't use electricity or a typical wheel. The electricity was not the main point there. It was okay. just like, you know. All right. <sighs> okay, we're going to talk about pottery. Okay. Pottery is the process of forming vessels and other objects out of clay or other ceramic materials. And they are fired at high temperatures to harden. Pottery began in prehistoric times. Because it is so durable, pottery is often the most common and important type of artifact found at archaeological sites. The main types of pottery are earthenware, stoneware, and porcelain. Earthenware is made from clays fired at low temperatures. It was initially fired in pit fires or bonfires. And the pieces were formed by hand and not decorated. Mm -hmm. They're usually fired below 1200 degrees Celsius and can even be fired as low as 600 degrees Celsius. Uh, they can't be used to hold liquids, though, because they're still porous. So because they're not hardened enough, basically, they're still porous, so they're not used for liquids. Okay. It started out in the Neolithic period and is still being made today. Terracotta is a type of earthenware. Right, yeah, that makes sense. It's interesting, though, because you use terracotta for soil and plants, I guess, because it doesn't hold all the water in. Well, the soil would hold the water, essentially. Right. I guess you don't want all the water building up in the bottom. Right. I don't know. I don't know enough about gardening. Anyway. <laughs> Stoneware pottery is fired in a kiln at a pretty high temperature, usually about 1100 or 1200 degrees Celsius. It is stronger than earthenware and is non-porous, so it can hold liquids. It's made for art, but is also made as, quote, fine stoneware in China, Japan, and the West. The final type of pottery, porcelain, is made by heating the clay in a kiln between 1200 and 1400 degrees Celsius. Porcelain usually uses a type of clay called kaolin, which is K-A-O-L-I-N. Okay. Porcelain is tougher, stronger, and more translucent than other types of pottery. It was first made in China during the Tang Dynasty, but the modern type was not made until later in the 14th century, and it was not made outside East Asia until the 18th century. And that's where I think China comes from. Like the term fine China. I think so. Yes, yeah. it is. And it, if you picture it, it has that look of yeah. porcelain. Yeah, yeah. So pottery starts out by kneading the clay to create an even moisture content throughout and remove any air. The pottery can be shaped with a variety of methods. The earliest method, of course, was just hand building. The clay is usually formed into coils, slabs, or balls, and then joined together with the help of a slip, which is an aqueous suspension of clay body and water. It's fun to touch it. <laughs> it's just like, so you know you have clay, and then you just have like the stuff that like grayish water. Have you no. ever done this? In like kindergarten. I did a lot of this in summer camp, like uh -huh. pretty intense pottery, so... <laughs> Okay. I know, I know it. So basically you have like a bath going with the slip uh -huh. because you don't want to just use pure water. Okay. Because it, it kind of blends everything better if there's clay in the water. I see. Okay. And then of course is the potter's wheel. In a process called throwing, a ball of clay is placed at the center of the turntable and the clay is pressed, squeezed, and pulled gently upward. That's the kind that you would mostly think of. Yeah. And you basically do throw the clay onto it. Yeah, I've seen it. It's fun. 
And then there are other types that use molds like injection molding and slip casting, but I won't get into the details of that. There are also different types of glazing, which is when you cover the clay in something before you bake it. Mm -hmm. My favorite type is salt glazing, where the salt gets deposited onto the surface and reacts with the clay to form a glaze. Hmm. It's cool. Okay. There's also ash glazing, which is done by the Catawba tribe, uh, people like Bertha Harris, who I mentioned in the question. And it's done by the combustion of plant matter that goes in there with it. Okay, yeah. Greenware is the term for unfired objects. Leather hard is a clay body that has been partially dried. Bone dry refers to clay bodies when their moisture content is about zero. Biscuit, or bisque, is when the object has been shaped and is fired in the kiln once, and that's called biscuit fired or bisque fired. And then the final stage is glaze fired, when the glaze is applied and then melts in the kiln, adhering to the object. And that's kind of the phases. Okay. That's it. Cool. Yeah, it's interesting. It's fun if you ever get to try pottery. It's really fun. (laughs) All right. All right. Are you ready for question two? Yes. It is movies and TV. Okay. What British-American actress who died this past July at the age of 104 first came to prominence in adventure films along with Errol Flynn and received five Oscar nominations, the first of which was as Melanie Hamilton in Gone with the Wind? That was a lot of info. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I can't think of her name. It's on the tip of your tongue. Yeah. You don't want to guess? I can't think of it. All right, I'll tell you. Congratulations. Oh, you're right. Oh, sorry. I shouldn't have front-loaded the hard ones, although I really thought you would get pottery. (sighs) Hey, you know what? We're even now, right? No, we're still not even. No, we are. We each have five season championships. That's nice and even, and I like it. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Do you want me to tell you who it is? Yes. It's Olivia de Havilland. That's right. Very important trivia name. Yeah. So, Olivia Marie de Havilland was born on July 1st, 1916 in Tokyo, Japan. Her father, Walter, was an English professor at the Imperial University there, and her mother was an actress. Her younger sister, Joan, later known as actress Joan Fontaine, was born 15 months later. Hmm. Like, if you look at, like, common trivia questions, that's a big one. To know that they were sisters. Olivia de Havilland and Joan Fontaine. Yes. Okay. Both daughters were sick when they were little, and in 1919, their mother persuaded their father to move the family back to England. On the way, they stopped in San Francisco to get Olivia's tonsillitis treated, but then Joan developed pneumonia, so they decided to just stay there. Their father abandoned the family for their Japanese housekeeper, who he later married. Their mother also remarried to George Milan Fontaine, which is where Joan took her last name. She didn't want to keep de Havilland because she didn't want the two of them to get confused. Right, yeah, okay. As a child, their mother had Olivia recite passages from Shakespeare to strengthen her diction. So she was starting her from an early age. (laughs) All right, yeah. She got a part in A Midsummer Night's Dream after the lead actress and the understudy for Hermia both left, and then Warner Brothers picked up the play for a film version. While making the film, she worked with the co-director and cinematographer to learn about the effect of lighting and camera angles on how she appeared on screen. So she was, you know, pretty smart and interested Mm -hmm. in kind of, like, knowing everything. The technical side of it. That's cool. Yeah. The film didn't get great reviews, but her performance was praised. 
After a couple of small comedies, she and her mother moved to Hollywood. Her next film was Captain Blood, a swashbuckler action drama starring little-known actor Errol Flynn. (laughs) It received good reviews and a wide public appeal. She reunited with Flynn the following year for The Charge of the Light Brigade, which became a box office hit. You don't often hear the phrase, little-known actor Errol Flynn. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's crazy. So, in 1938, they starred together again in The Adventures of Robin Hood, in which she played Maid Marian. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, it's good to know they were in a lot of films together. Yeah, okay. That year, the producer of Gone with the Wind had his eye on de Havilland for the role of Melanie Hamilton Wilkes, but Jack L. Warner was unwilling to lend her out for the project. Unlike most other actresses, de Havilland actually wanted to play Melanie Hamilton, not Scarlett O'Hara. Warner's wife convinced him to let her take the role, which gave her her first Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actress. In 1941, de Havilland and Errol Flynn were reunited for their eighth and final film, They Died With Their Boots On. In 1943, after fulfilling her seven-year contract with Warner Brothers, She was told that six months had been added to make up for when she had been suspended for rejecting a role. So basically, there was this thing where they would suspend actors for rejecting a role. Okay. That was proposed to them. And even though her contract was seven years, they said that she had to, you know, have an extra six months because she was suspended one time. Okay. So anyway, she filed a lawsuit against them, and the court ultimately ruled in her favor, saying that no studio could hold an actor to contract for longer than seven years. And this is still known as the de Havilland Law. Huh. There you go. Yeah, it's a good fact. In 1946, she and Ida Lupino starred in the film Devotion, in which they played Charlotte and Emily Bronte. Okay. It's an interesting one. I don't know. I never saw it. Nope. Then in 1949, she starred in the period drama The Heiress, in which she plays a young woman who is jilted by a young man named Montgomery Clift. Just a good thing to know. Okay, noted. She won the Academy Award for Best Actress for the film. It was her second Academy Award win after 1946's To Each His Own. She and her sister Joan Fontaine are the only siblings to have won Academy Awards in a lead acting category. Huh. Isn't that good? That's a good fact. Yeah. There you go. She continued to star in things throughout the 50s, 60s, and 70s, including various TV miniseries, but none were as popular as her previous films. Her final screen performance was in 1988 in the romantic TV drama The Woman He Loved. So her repertoire went downhill a little bit. Well, she was getting old. Yeah. She was featured in the TV series Feud Bet and... Is it Bet or Betty? I never know. What? T. Davis? Bet Davis? Betty Davis? Let's go with Betty Davis. Okay. You know that TV show Feud, Betty, and Joan? No. What? It was like one of those American... Like one of those anthology ones. Okay. Anyway, it was about the feud between Betty Davis and Joan Fontaine, and obviously Olivia de Havilland was in it because she was Joan Fontaine's sister. Oh, okay. That's cool. she was played by Catherine Zeta-Jones. Ah, okay. Yeah. She wasn't in it. Right. But the character was in it. Okay, sure. And it's also worth noting that their cousin, Sir Jeffrey de Havilland, founded the de Havilland Aircraft Company. No kidding. Yeah. In 2017, two weeks before her 101st birthday, de Havilland became a dame. Good for her. Yep. And she died in her home in Paris of natural causes on July 26, 2020. Natural causes. You don't read that too often. No. She made it. Question three is everything else. 
Okay. Olivia Hooker, who died in 2018 at the age of 103, was the first African-American woman in what branch of the United States Armed Forces, which was created in 1790 at the request of Alexander Hamilton as the Revenue Marine? Uh, probably the Coast Guard? Is that your guess? Yeah. Yeah, it's okay. the Coast Guard. Okay. So I'm going to tell you about the Coast Guard. All right. (laughs) The U.S. Coast Guard is the Maritime Security, Search and Rescue, and Law Enforcement Service branch of the U.S. Armed Forces. It operates under the U.S. Department of Homeland Security during peacetime and can be transferred to the U.S. Department of the Navy under the Department of Defense by the President at any time or by U.S. Congress during times of war. It dates back to the small fleet of vessels controlled by the U.S. Department of the Treasury in the 1790s to enforce tariffs. I never knew this. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I guess it makes sense historically. Yeah, so until the reestablishment of the Navy in 1798, these revenue cutters were the only naval force. Because of that, they also did other jobs like combating piracy, rescuing mariners in distress, and even carrying mail. It was officially called the United States Revenue Cutter Service until the modern Coast Guard was created in 1915, which merged them with the U.S. Life-Saving Service. Hmm. The Coast Guard was involved in the War of 1812, the Mexican-American War, and the U.S. Civil War. The Coast Guard has three main roles, which are maritime safety, maritime security, and maritime stewardship. The organization is decentralized, and junior personnel hold a lot of the responsibilities. The Coast Guard's 11 statutory missions are divided into homeland security and non-homeland security missions. The homeland security missions are defense readiness, law enforcement, migrant interdiction, ports, waterways, and coastal security, and drug interdiction. The non-homeland security missions are ice operations, living marine resources, marine environmental protection, marine safety, aids to navigation, which are like lighthouses and beacons, right, and search and rescue. The Coast Guard also operates the National Response Center, the only U.S. government point of contact for reporting oil, chemical, radiological, and biological spills into the environment. Hmm. They have an extensive fleet of 243 coastal and ocean-going patrol ships and 1650 smaller boats, as well as an aviation division with 201 helicopters and fixed-wing aircraft. Why 201? (laughs) I don't get that. As of 2018, the U.S. Coast Guard was the world's 12th largest naval force. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it is. It's bigger than some countries' actual navies. Right. Interesting. They have a total workforce of 87,569. Uniformed members are formally called Coast Guardsmen and informally called Coasties. (laughs) Coasties. Yeah, it's cute. Commissioned officers have pay grades that range from 01 to 010, And they have the same rank structure as the Navy, which I'm going to tell you now. All right. Kill two birds with one stone. Sure. O-1 is ensign. Then you have lieutenant junior grade. Then lieutenant. Then lieutenant commander. Then commander. Then captain. Then rear admiral lower half, which I really like that name. Rear (laughs) admiral lower half. (laughs) That sounds wrong. Um, Then... 08 is Rear Admiral, 09 is Vice Admiral, and 010 is Admiral. Yeah. It's the same as the ranks in Star Trek, basically. They're naval ranks. If you're a Trekkie, then you already know. The naval ranks are basically the Starfleet If you're not a Trekkie, then you know. I mean, it's not exactly the same, but it's pretty darn close. Okay. What's Picard? 
well, I mean, it depends on what we're talking. He's usually a captain. In TNG era, he's a captain. Um, by the Who's last, an admiral. By Sulu? the last few movies. What? Isn't Sulu an admiral? I mean, eventually they're all admirals, basically. Like, by the last few movies, Picard is an admiral. Um, but Sulu, he was an ensign for most of the original series. Oh, okay. Because he's, he's just like the helmsman, basically. Right. Enlisted members in the Coast Guard have pay grades from E1 to E9 and also follow the same rank structure as the Navy, with E1 as Seaman Recruit, then Seaman Apprentice, then Seaman, then Petty Officer 3rd Class, then Petty Officer 2nd Class, Petty Officer 1st Class, and then Chief Petty Officer. Mm -hmm. The Coast Guard core values are honor, respect, and devotion to duty. The official march of the U.S. Coast Guard is Semper Paratus. Did I say that right? Yeah. Which is Latin for always, always ready. Yeah. And that prepared. is their official motto. Yeah. I always have to heard it rendered as always prepared, but same thing. Oh, yeah. 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 My 11th grade physics teacher was an ex-coasty. That's random. He was, uh, he like, he worked as an engineer in the Coast Guard and then like parlayed that into getting a degree in engineering and then became a teacher of physics. Cool. Yeah. That was it. Okay. <laughs> it's gonna be okay. That brings us to halftime. Cheer up. Thanks for listening. I hope you're enjoying this more than I am. If you are, please follow us. Should I take over? Like us, give us a rating and a review. You sound like Eeyore. <laughs> uh, I hate losing. Um, Here's our special guest Eeyore to give you the halftime rundown. All right. So, yeah, give us a rating and a review and all that good stuff. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us. We're quizandhers at gmail.com. Or you can follow and interact with us on social media. We are at Quiz and Hers on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So if you want to contact us or maybe send us a submission for our segment Fact or Fucked, uh, you can do that in any of those ways. And we are, of course, proud members of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. So check out BigHeadsMedia.com. There are tons of other podcasts on the network about all sorts of different things. So if you enjoy this, you will probably find something else that you enjoy there. And to get you started, we're just going to give you a quick word from one of our other sister podcasts on the Big Heads Media Network. Did you know that a man once jumped into a bulletproof window so much that he busted it out of the frame and fell to his death? I do. Hey, I'm Nicholas Howe, and I made an improvised comedy storytelling podcast about this death and many others. Using a multiverse of me's as the catalyst, I explore the various ways people have died. I also have special guests on Freak Them Out about how dangerous the world is. Did you know lakes can explode? You do now. Listen to the How Will I Die podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow us on Twitter at H-W-I-D-I-E-P-O-D. Alright, that's that, and we are back for a completely meaningless oh, back half of the game. It's never meaningless, because it's learning, and learning is not meaningless. Remember why we're here to get better at trivia? Yes. Okay. Question four, sports and games. Eddie Ambrose, who lived to age 100 and worked with Toro Wildair and John P. Greer, and Edgar Britt, who lived to age 103 and worked with Kerry Piper, Oat Flake, and Black Tarkin, or is it Tarquin, both held what profession? <laughs> All right. Well, it's something with horse racing, clearly, given those names. Um. You said worked with, so they're not an owner, because owners don't do anything, they just have money. So it's either a trainer or a jockey. 
And I'm going to guess, I mean, it could be either one, but I'm going to guess jockey. Yes, they were jockeys. All right. Trainers could have worked for that structure of that question. All right, sorry, but I thought it was pretty clear. Jockey seemed like the more- I didn't want to say road. Right. Figured jockey seemed like the more likely answer. All right. So I'm going to do a general overview of horse racing. Have we not talked about this before? No, you talked about steeplechase. Right. That was it. Okay. I know, shocking. Yeah. I've had doing the Triple Crown winners on my list forever, and yeah. I just haven't found a theme to tie it to. I'm not talking about like specific races, really. Okay. We're just doing an overview of what horse racing is. Okay. It dates back to ancient Greece, ancient Rome, Babylon, Syria, and Egypt. Horse racing became established in Britain in the 18th century. By 1750, the Jockey Club was formed to control new market races and set the rules of the game. New market was where they had the races. Mm-hmm. The Epsom Derby began in 1780. The main types of horse racing are flat racing, jump racing, harness racing, and endurance racing. Flat racing is the most common form of horse racing worldwide. Tracks are typically flat and oval in shape, although Epsom Racecourse has severe gradients. Hmm. The most common track service in Europe is turf, but in North America and Asia, it's usually dirt. Right, yeah. I feel like I've seen both. It's typically dirt in the US. Yeah. Flat races range from 440 yards, which is 400 meters, up to two and a half miles or four kilometers. Short races are called sprints, and long races are called routes in the U.S. and staying races in Europe. The most prestigious races in the world are in between these short and longer lengths and are considered tests of both speed and stamina. Right, yeah. Well, all of the Triple Crown ones are like between a mile and a mile and three quarters, I think. Yeah, so the point is like the sprints are testing speed and the... Routes or staying races are testing stamina, Endurance, but yeah. like the main ones are in between. Right, yeah. And these most prestigious races include the Prix de l'Arc de Triomphe, Melbourne Cup, Japan Cup, Epsom Derby, Kentucky Derby, and Dubai World Cup. Mm-hmm. Jump racing, known as national hunt racing in Great Britain and Ireland, includes steeplechasing and hurdling. Justin talked about steeplechase. I did. It's weird. Yep. And basically, the point is that they're jumping over obstacles. Right. Although I was talking about the human steeplechase, not the equestrian event. Oh, yeah, you're right. Which is even weirder. Yes, it is. It's the weirdest track and field event in the world. But it's like based on the horse one. Uh, yeah. Well, so one of of them comes from the other. But anyway, you're jumping over things. Right. It's like a track with giant hurdles and like a mud pit in the middle not mud pit, yeah, but yeah, like yeah. a like a water pit in the middle of the track so weird it's very strange harness racing is where horses go around the track while pulling a sulky and a driver behind them harness racing is really fucking weird yeah have you ever seen it it's so weird to yeah, watch yeah a sulky is like that one person thing it's like a laying down chariot right it's so odd there are two types of horses in harness racing Pacers who move their legs on the same side of their body in tandem, and trotters who move diagonal legs at the same time. I don't even understand this, but that's a thing. I mean, I understand the concept. I don't understand why or how you teach a horse to do this. I have no idea. In endurance racing, the races can go up to 100 miles, but can be as short as 10 miles. There are actually some races that are even longer than 100 miles and last multiple days. That's insane. Yeah, and they're usually done on trails of natural terrain. So, like, you're not just going around and around and around right. a track. Still, though. Yeah, it's crazy. Wow. Most horse races are restricted to certain breeds. 
The horse must have a sire, which is the father, and dam, which is the mother, who are approved members of whatever breed they're looking for. Right. There are three founding sires that all thoroughbreds can be traced back through in the male line. The Darley Arabian, the Godolphin Arabian, and the Byerly Turk. They were taken to England and mated with mares from English and imported bloodlines. Thoroughbreds can travel medium distances at fast speeds. Artificial insemination is not allowed in the thoroughbred breeds. Really? Yes. Huh. So they're like real, they're like the top of the top. Well, yeah, I mean, again, that's what all, that's what the Kentucky Derby is. It's a thoroughbred race. Right. Like, all of the really major races are thoroughbreds. Yeah, yeah, so they cannot do artificial insemination. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's interesting. Standard breds are mainly used for harness racing. They are descended from thoroughbreds, morgans, and extinct breeds, and can be used for jumping, dressage, and pleasure riding. The Arabian horse was developed by the Bedouin people for stamina over long distances. Mm-hmm. They were brought to the U.S. in 1725 and began being bred as purebreds during the Civil War. As you would imagine, they are mainly used for endurance racing. Right. Quarter horses were a blend of colonial Spanish horses crossed with English horses. In addition to the breeds I've mentioned, other breeds that can be used for horse racing include Appaloosa, American Paint Horse, Mules, Cell Francaise, and Korean Jeju. Anyway, I don't have time to talk about, like, specific horses or jockeys, but Mm. we should definitely talk, or races, we could cover that another time, but this was just the general overview. Yeah, like I said, I've wanted to talk about the Triple Crown winners forever, and I just can't find a game to force it into, but one of these days, Mm. I'll I'll talk about them. You have to, like, think of a theme that fits one of their weird names. I don't have any right now, so. Okay, I will save that for you. Okay. All right, question five is times and places. What American politician who died in 2003 at the age of 100 and a half served for 48 years as a senator from South Carolina and ran for president in 1948 with the Dixiecrat Party who supported racial segregation? Why can't I think of his name? Strom Thurmond. Is that your guess? Yeah. Yes, it is. (laughs) I don't know why I couldn't- He did it. I don't know why that wouldn't come to me. I should know that cold. It is Strom Thurmond. Yeah. But we're not talking about Strom Thurmond. We're talking about the Dixie Crap Party. Okay. Which a lot of it involves him, so- Well, yes. But I'm not just talking about his life. I'm just talking about this party. It's interesting. Yeah, okay. Also known as the State's Rights Democratic Party, the Dixie Crap Party was a segregationist party mainly active in the South. As you may recall, back in the 1800s, the Republicans were anti-slavery and the Democrats were pro-slavery. Right. Abraham Lincoln was a Republican. That's right. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, the Democrats gained control of the state legislatures in the South and passed laws to disenfranchise most blacks and also poor whites. Yeah, Jim Crow. Right. Those are the Jim Crow laws and that's how they ended up with the segregation. Yeah. In the 1940s, members of the Republican Party and Democrats from northern and western states supported civil rights legislation, but Deep South Democrats were still opposed. Most of the South was Democrats. Right, yeah, the Solid South. Right. In 1948, a group of Southern governors, including Strom Thurmond and Fielding L. Wright of Mississippi, well, he was of South Carolina, Wright was from Mississippi, sorry, that was unclear, Right. uh, met regarding the position of Southern Democrats within the party. They decided that if Truman and the civil rights supporters won at the 1948 Democratic Convention, 
they would have their own convention, and that's what happened. Thurmond had doubts about a third-party bid, but the party organizers convinced him to accept the Dixiecrat nomination. The states' rights Democrats didn't officially declare themselves as a new third party, they just said that they were recommending that state Democratic parties vote for the Thurmond Wright ticket. Mm -hmm. Their hope was to win the 127 electoral votes of the South, denying the other two candidates a majority of the electoral votes and forcing the election to go to the House of Representatives. Then once it got to the House, the Dixiecrat representatives would support whichever candidate would agree to their segregationist demands. I see. So they weren't even trying to win. <laughs> I see. So wait, which year is this? It's- 48. 48, okay. So, yeah, basically they weren't trying to win, they were just trying to prevent the other two from winning with a majority right. so that they could force them to keep the segregation. Right, right, okay. In the end, they succeeded in making the Thurmond Wright ticket the official Democratic ticket in Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, and South Carolina, but they had to run as a third party in the other states, with Truman as the Democratic candidate and Dewey as the Republican candidate. They won in the four states where they were the Democratic ticket and got 39 electoral votes. Truman ended up defeating Dewey in an upset to win the election. Right. Very famous picture yeah. of him holding up the headline from the Chicago Tribune, I think. I think that that's says right. that Dewey defeats Truman. Yep. Before so, the state before the votes counts from the West came in. Yeah. It was a big shock. Yeah. After the election, the state's rights Democratic Party dissolved. Truman, the Democratic National Committee, and the New Deal Southern Democrats worked to make sure that the Dixiecrat movement didn't return for the nineteen fifty two election. Good. At the 1952 Democratic National Convention, the Southern delegations agreed to a party loyalty pledge. Democratic party loyalty was also boosted in 1952 when Alabama Senator John Sparkman was chosen as the vice presidential nominee. Hmm. So basically, they picked someone from the South to help get these guys on board. Yeah, yeah. Even after this, the South remained a strongly Democratic voting bloc for local, state, and federal congressional elections, but less and less in presidential elections. In 1952 and 56, Dwight D. Eisenhower won several southern states. In 1956, T. Coleman Andrews ran as the candidate of the state's rights party, but only received 0.2% of the popular vote. Wow. So I guess there was some, like, small contingent still happening. Right. But But so Thurmond, actually, he, like, he didn't get enough electoral votes to kick the election to the House, but he did, like, pick up some- 39. 39, okay, yeah. In 1960, Nixon, a Republican, won several southern states. And in 1964, Republican Barry Goldwater won all four states that Thurman carried in 1948. Mm-hmm. In 1968, Nixon or third-party candidate George Wallace won every former Confederate state except Texas. And that's kind of how everything flipped. Right, yeah. We could talk about that another time, but that was a little summary at yeah. the end. Okay, nice. Yep. Okay, the last question is music. All right. What American composer and lyricist who died in 1989 at the age of 100 wrote songs for Broadway shows and Hollywood films, such as Putting on the Ritz, Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Better, and White Christmas? It's Irving Berlin. Is that your guess? Yeah. Yes, it's Irving Berlin. Okay. Crazy that this hasn't come up yet. Yeah, it is. He is extremely prolific. Yeah. Irving Berlin was born Israel Balin on May 11, 1888, in the Russian Empire. He was one of eight children. His father, who was a cantor at a synagogue, brought the family to America. When they arrived at Ellis Island, the name Balin was changed to Balin, 
And I'm still not sure when he changed it to Berlin. Couldn't find anything about it. All right, then. The family lived in a basement and then moved to a tenement. His father couldn't find work as a cantor, so he worked at a kosher meat market and gave Hebrew lessons on the side. Unfortunately, he died just a few years later when Irving was 13 years old. Irving got a job selling newspapers and would sometimes sing while working to make a few extra coins. When he was 18, he got a job as a singing waiter at the Pelham Cafe in Chinatown. After the bar closed for the night, he would sit at the piano and teach himself to play, so he never had any lessons. Wow. Yep. Music publisher Harry Von Tilzer Company discovered Berlin and hired him. In the 1910s, he began to rise as a songwriter in Tin Pan Alley and on Broadway. His first world-famous hit was Alexander's Ragtime Band. He immediately became famous, and it revived the passion for ragtime music that Scott Joplin started a decade earlier. Hmm. The song made the charts sung by people like Louis Armstrong, Bing Crosby, and Al Jolson. Composer George Gershwin called it the first real American musical work. I don't really know what that means, but okay. I don't know. In 1914, Berlin wrote a ragtime review called Watch Your Step. The song Play a Simple Melody was the first of his double songs, in which two different melodies and lyrics are counterpointed against each other. By 1918, he had written hundreds of songs, mostly topical, and which had brief popularity. Many were written for the dance crazes of the time, like the Grizzly Bear, Chicken Walk, or Foxtrot. I've heard of the Foxtrot. I have not heard of the Grizzly Bear or the Chicken Walk. (laughs) Yeah. He also started to transition more from ragtime to ballads. He wrote the ballad A Pretty Girl is Like a Melody for Ziegfeld's Follies of 1919. It was so popular that it became the theme for all of Ziegfeld's reviews and for the 1936 film The Great Ziegfeld. Is it Ziegfeld? I don't know. I always thought it was. I'm still not sure how to say it. Okay. Let's say Ziegfeld. Because there's no I, right? No. It's F-E-L-D? I think. No, I'm not sure. Z-I-E-G-F-E-L-D, I think. Ziegfeld. I'm not sure. All right, whatever. It doesn't matter, but... Let's say Ziegfeld. Fine. In 1917, Berlin was drafted into the U.S. Army for whom he wrote songs like, Oh, How I Hate to Get Up in the Morning. That was a big one. I feel that. Yep. Another song he wrote for the Army show, but decided not to use that time, was God Bless America. Wow. Okay. He was like, nah, save it. Okay. In 1921, Berlin returned to Tin Pan Alley and created the Music Box Theater with Sam Harris. It was the only Broadway house built to accommodate the works of a songwriter. In the 20s, he had hits with the songs What'll I Do, Always, Blue Skies, which was sung by Al Jolson in The Jazz Singer, and Putting on the Ritz, which was sung in Young Frankenstein. (laughs) Yes, correct. In 1932, he wrote the music and lyrics for the musical Face the Music, which was a political satire. Throughout the 30s, he also wrote music for several Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies, like Top Hat, for which he wrote the song Cheek to Cheek. That's a famous one, too. Yeah. All of these are famous. He also wrote the songs Let's Face the Music and Dance and Change Partners for Fred and Ginger. In 1938, he finally released God Bless America, which quickly became a second national anthem. Mm Mm-hmm. In the early 40s, he wrote the song Any Bonds Today, question mark, at the request of Treasury Secretary Henry Morgenthau to encourage Americans to buy war bonds. Then in 1942, he wrote the stage show This is the Army, which went to Broadway in Washington, D.C., and was eventually shown at military bases around the world. In 1943, it was adapted into a movie with the same name. Hmm. Never heard of it. This is the Army. Guess it is. 
1942, the film Holiday Inn introduced Berlin's song White Christmas, one of the most recorded songs in history. Bing Crosby's version of White Christmas is the best-selling single of all time. That's ridiculous. I know. After that, he wrote scores for other films like Easter Parade with Judy Garland and Fred Astaire. He then wrote the music and lyrics for the musical Annie Get Your Gun after Jerome Kern died suddenly. He was supposed to do it. Okay. They were friends, too. All right. It included hits like There's No Business Like Show Business and Anything You Can Do. Before Kern died, he said, quote, Irving Berlin has no place in American music. He is American music. It's a good line. It is. Okay. After that, Berlin continued to write. He actually wrote Dwight D. Eisenhower's campaign song, I Like Ike. No kidding. Yep. Oh, all right. He didn't really have any other famous hits after that, though. He and his wife, Ellen McKay, lived happily together during their 63 years of marriage until she died in 1988 at the age of 85. He died a year later of a heart attack at the age of 101. Wow. Yep. So right. many songs. Yeah, that's, um, I'm surprised we have not talked about him before. I know. It's very trivial. It was a real struggle to tear it down <laughs> to this. <laughs> I think I got all the important ones in. All right. Nice. Yep. Okay. Well, then that brings us to the final fact or fucked of season 10. And I think it's only right that today's Fact or Fucked comes to us from our good buddy Cormac, the most (laughs) uh, prolific Fact or Fucked contributor, I think. Yep. Here is what he says. Ireland and the UK are not in the same time zone, but are always on the same time. Excuse me? Ireland and the UK are not in the same time zone, but are always on the same time. I don't think that's true. I say fucked. It's fact. What? Okay. I've been to Ireland. I feel like I remember it was a different time there than it was in... It's not. Okay, oh. so here's the explanation. So I was looking around for this. It, I could not find a straight answer. So eventually I just messaged Cormac on Twitter and I was just like, dude, like, what is this real or not? And okay, so here's his explanation. Okay. I never get his right. Irish Standard Time, or IST, is Greenwich Mean Time plus one hour. Okay. UK Standard Time is just Greenwich Mean Time. So it's Greenwich Mean Time plus zero. So you'd think Ireland would be an hour ahead of the UK. However, they both change their time for the summer and the winter, okay? So just like we have daylight savings time here, they have something like that in both of those countries. Irish Standard Time is observed in the summer and goes back an hour in the winter. And so Irish Standard Time minus an hour equals Greenwich Mean Time. UK Standard Time is observed in the winter and goes forward for the summer. So Greenwich Mean Time plus one equals Irish Standard Time. This ends up with them never being in their quote-unquote standard time at the same time. And so Irish Standard Time is an hour ahead of British Standard Time, UK Standard Time, but they happen at different times of the year. And so, even though they're in different time zones, it's always the same time. I get so confused with this. Like, between Daylight Savings Time and, like, Eastern Standard Time, I live here and I still don't understand it. 
I know, like, you set the clock back and you set right. the clock ahead, but I never know when we're in the daylight. Sa- like, now we're in the daylight saving? I'm never sure about that. Exactly. But, it's so confusing. But so the point is, Ireland and the UK are in different time zones, but there is, it is always the same time there because of when their standard times, quote unquote, are observed versus not. That's so confusing. Isn't that I'm wild? I'm still confused. I can, okay. I can do it again if you want. It's fine. There was math. I gotcha. Okay. All right. All right. Well, congratulations, Thank champ. Thank you. We are now even after 10 seasons of this. I have five season championships, and you have five season championships. Yep. Exciting. So we'll break the tie next season. Yep. And we'll be back in a few weeks with that. Yep. All right. See you guys then. Have Happy a good holiday, guys. 100. Yep. And thanks for listening to 100 episodes of this, whatever this is. Yes. Enjoy <laughs> the holiday. All right. We'll be back in the beginning of January. 2021. 2021. Yep. Hopefully it's better than 2020. Yep. All right. We hope. See you guys then. Bye. Bye. The song made the charts sung by people like Louis Armstrong. Louis Armstrong? What is wrong with me? Louis one Louis Armstrong. <laughs> it's like when you're reading one ter- word at a time and you- then you get to the next word and then you're like, nope. Yikes.